The Gist is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code THEGIST. And buy Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. Try the new Squarespace 7 and get 10% off when you visit squarespace.com and enter offer code GIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, March 4th, 2015 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Hillary Clinton apparently ran a homebrew email system, what they call a homebrew. She made it herself. I didn't even know this was possible, but like people who bake their own bread or roll their own clove cigarettes, which was more of a Bill Clinton thing, but not on U.S. soil. Zing! Clinton, you're a zing! Don't! 90s zing. Anyway, Hillary hosted an email server out of her own home, Hildroponics style. And the great thing about the AP story that reported on this was that it listed what her email address was, hdr22 at clintonemail.com. But because it listed it like that, you could click on it and send an email to Hillary, I guess. There's no way to disable that feature online, I suppose. If I were to send an email to Hillary, I would ask her, what else is going on in that old house on Old House Lane in Chappaqua? Was was the stuff more along the lines of artisan craftsmanship, like Hillary brining her own cucumbers, Hillary engaging in light taxidermy, Hillary learning to loom? Or was it more like aggressively replacing the normal role of government services? Hillary training her own cadre of Secret Service agents. Hillary personally retrofitting Tartar service-to-air missiles to meet the RIM-24C standard. Hillary overseeing the smelting of iron ore to develop stronger alloys to line the presidential limo, the beast. And that'll be for whoever the next president is. The metallurgy that Hillary develops, that'll be open-sourced. For the next president, whoever he or she might, she, it's going to be a she, it's Hillary's world, whoever she might be. But I've said too much, which brings me to the spiel in today's show. Did you notice that yesterday's show was a little long? I think it ran 42 minutes. We're on a mission of terseness today. And I spiel about media that takes up too much of your time. Don't you hate that when that happens? But first, and in fact, our only interview, it's a meaty one with a former journalist, diplomat, and arms negotiator who faced down scary adversaries over a table on the theory that it's the scary ones you need to be negotiating with. But first this, let's say Hillary Clinton wanted to set up more than an email system, which she's pretty good at, but wanted to set up a website. She wouldn't have to rely on some nefarious coders who you can't really track down except on the dark internet. No, she could just use Squarespace. Squarespace is simple, powerful, beautiful. It offers 24-7 support via live chat. Who's going to be there when you need to chat at 3 in the morning? Who's going to answer the live chat and email? It's Squarespace. It's for $8 a month, you get a free domain if you buy Squarespace for the year. Commerce. Every website comes with a free online store. Cover pages. That allows you to set up a beautiful one-page online presence in minutes, like your name, one six, whatever, for whatever you want to use. You don't have to officially announce it, but you can have it ready to go. So start a trial with no credit card required, and you can start building your website today, whether you have a large house in Chappaqua or not. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code HILLPACK16. No, no, no to use the offer code GIST to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful. 
That deal will not prevent Iran from developing nuclear weapons. It would all but guarantee that Iran gets those weapons, lots of them. That's why this deal is so bad. It doesn't block Iran's path to the bomb. It paves Iran's path to the bomb. Uh, the prime minister didn't offer any viable alternatives. And the alternative that the prime minister offers is no deal, in which case Iran will immediately begin once again pursuing its nuclear program, accelerate its nuclear program, without us having any insight into what they're doing and without constraint. Joining me now is Leslie Gelb. Les Gelb is the President Emeritus and Board Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. He is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist for many years with the New York Times. And among his other credentials, he was the Assistant Secretary of State in the Carter administration. He was relevant to our discussion here, Director of Policy Planning and Arms Control for International Security Affairs at the Defense Department from 1967 to 1969. Hi, Les. How are you doing, Mike? I'm well. Let's talk about precedent. It does seem, I don't know if it's unprecedented, but the situation between Iran and the United States, you know, Iran hasn't lost a war. Iran doesn't have a boot on its neck in terms of having to do a deal now. But am I missing some historical antecedents? You're not missing anything at all, except put it into a larger context. I would say these negotiations have the chance of being the single most important foreign policy event of this decade, if they can work. And if they fail, they'll be important too, but in the wrong direction. I want to know, do you, let's back up a bit. The one reason Iran's at the negotiating table is their economy is in such tatters. Does this make an argument that sanctions work? Well, sanctions work up to a point. I think there's no doubt about that. But there's no history whatsoever that sanctions have brought a country like Iran or or North Korea or Cuba to its knees. It just never happened. It hurts. It creates incentives to negotiate, but it doesn't create uh, conditions for capitulation, which is what some are calling for. Right. Some are calling for the only deal that we'll take is one where Iran basically gives up everything, and the only negotiation is no negotiation. It's defeat. Yeah, it's Iran's acceptance that it will not have... Uh, in effect, any nuclear program. And while I would like that, of course, of course I'd like it, uh, I don't see any prospect that Iran is, is simply going to give it all away. Because just as we don't trust them, and boy, we have plenty of grounds for not trusting them, they look back at their history with us and they say, we can't trust the United States either. So this is a step, and it's a big deal in both countries, and it's hard to negotiate a compromise in both countries. Do you think that the success of this will really depend on the fine-tuned details of how many centrifuges, how many inspectors, or is it more like Bibi Netanyahu was saying, forget those details, it's all going to be a lie anyway if you sign this deal. There's no way that Iran will stick with it. It uh, doesn't matter what it says on the paper, they can't be negotiated. You know, I think that Prime Minister Netanyahu's speech yesterday was great politics and horrible policy. Uh, he, he said a few things that no experienced diplomat, including Israeli diplomats, would ever uh, take as gospel. 
the enemy of my enemy is my enemy. We, we negotiate with lesser enemies all the time against bigger enemies. Uh, we try to work out deals. They've tried to work out deals with the PLO. They considered Yasser Arafat an enemy, and they, they bargained with him because they're trying to see whether they can achieve a safer situation for themselves down the line. They weren't going to give everything away to Arafat, just like we're not going to give everything away to Iran. We're giving away very little, in fact. Yeah, and one of the things he was also saying is that he doesn't think the sanctions will work in terms of uh, preventing nuclear, uh, uh, preventing them acquiring nuclear capabilities. Although you could also argue, but if there are no sanctions or if there are no deals, that then they'll acquire nuclear capabilities anyway. Of course, he didn't yeah. address that. Yeah, but then I guess he also was saying, so what this deal will do is it will make them more economically flush and therefore more dangerous. Now, is that true? Does a country get more militarily dangerous when their economy is good? Because I can think of a bunch of examples, like Nazi Germany, where the opposite is true. Yeah, <clears throat> well, look, it is a risk. There's no question that you give them uh, more economic wherewithal, that their economy begins to recover. If they really are bad guys intent on destroying Israel, developing nuclear weapons to use against the United States, if they're that crazy, yes, that could help them. But the only way you can test it is to make this deal. We're not going to be uh, uh, showering gifts on the Iranian economy. Some sanctions will be lifted, but it will take uh, oh, quite a while before sanctions are lifted to the degree that it will make a significant difference in the Iranian economy. Now, he was also, and it's, uh, it's a little discomforting to base it all on what Netanyahu was saying, but this is, he not only made the argument, but encapsulates the general argument against making a deal. He was also making an argument that, you know, inspectors don't prevent uh, n- nuclear capabilities from being pursued. They just sort of blow the whistle and alert you after a rule's been broken. Isn't that an argument against every arms agreement? Yeah, it is, and it's been made against every arms agreement. A good chunk of my life was spent negotiating with the Soviet Union on arms control there of various sorts, particularly nuclear. And we always had that argument thrown up in our faces. And there was a risk. Uh, we We basically inspected the Soviet Union's compliance with arms control agreements with our satellites and with our listening posts. And in truth, when the Cold War was over, uh, we discovered huge underground, virtually cities, making chemical and biological weapons. Uh, So, you know, they were cheating. And you do run that risk. But the point is, if you have inspectors allowed on the ground you have a bigger chance of catching them than you do if you don't have inspectors on the ground and challenging rights to go uh, search different places. It's just obvious that it's better. It's not a guarantee, but it's better. Knowing what we know about how the Soviets cheated, would you have done the arms deal differently, or do you got to expect a certain amount of that? No, I I would have made the deals anyway, because... And I, I always argued with a lot of my friends about whether or not we were doing arms control. That is, were we prepared to give up much, or were the Soviets prepared to give up much in armaments? And the answer was no. Uh, what we were doing were, was managing mutual relations until we got to the point where <laughs> they collapsed. But we, but we weren't doing much arms control. And in this case, 
there isn't great arms control. It doesn't guarantee Iran can't go, go nuclear down the line, but it's managing the relationship to see if you can do something more two years from now, five years from now, on the fronts that we do care about, namely their support for, for terrorism, for her, their support for Hamas and Hezbollah. Does the White House's stance vis-a-vis Netanyahu, does John Kerry's stance where he was condemnatory of it and maybe even paying a bit of a political price for being condemnatory of it, does it in a weird way earn credibility with the Iranians? You know, I I think you do. Uh, But the the foreign minister, uh, Zarif, who I think is a very very, uh, good diplomat, he goes home and he says, I can work with Kerry. And I think we're... uh, we're having reasonable negotiations with the United States, and I want to get better terms. <clears throat> and there are people inside Tehran who will say, "Ah, you know, he's he's wimping out. He's uh, he's gotten involved in diplomacy, and we can't trust him anymore." So you have the same sort of internal dynamic there that we do here. Um, by the way, is your influence just that you've done it? Maybe people who are in the negotiations studied at your feet, you've written about it, or is anyone every once in a while call you and ask your advice on this stuff? Not, not from the Obama administration. <laughs> they, they seem to have all the answers themselves. You, you, don't, you don't look at the phone and see that Montro international <laughs> calling card? And that was... <laughs> no, but uh, I, I, think that, uh, the, I think they're on the right path even without me on, in this one. Wow. Well, is there anything else in Bibi's speech, either what he did or didn't say, that is notable? You know, he, he didn't recite Israel's usual lines about zero enrichment uh, agreement with Iran. That is, uh, you must have an agreement with them where they promise not to do any enrichment whatsoever. That's been their position all along. He did not repeat that this time. He didn't uh, call for the dismantling of all their facilities. That was part of their standard line, too. Now, it may have been that his three-hour speech was too long as it was, and he didn't want to burden it with any more detail, or it may be the absence of these points indicates some flexibility. But if it's there, uh, you'll see the leaks in the coming days. Les Gelb is a lot of things, but he's been through the wars. In fact, because he's been through the wars, maybe we haven't as a diplomat and as a journalist. Thank you, Les. Thank you. Enjoyed it. The Gist is sponsored by Stamps.com. Perhaps you have heard me mention that going to the post office takes time. Wait, Mike, doesn't listening to you talk about going to the post office, doesn't that take up time? Indeed it does, hypothetical metal listener. But in the spiel, soon, I will put forth a contemplation of how much time all of this takes up. But first, I ask you to think about how much time going to the post office takes if you are Matt Pines, who heard about Stamps.com on the show. Matt runs something called Main teen camp in Porter, Maine. We're a general interest summer camp. You know, kind of what you would think of as a traditional Maine summer camp. You know, lots of water sports, lots of land sports and arts. You can probably tell that Matt Pines is not a native of Porter, Maine. He's Australian, but he needs a lot of real U.S. postage because, as it turns out, you send a lot of mail when you run a summer camp. A lot of postcards, actually, like and, and especially newsletters and billing statements and 
reminders, you know, as we're getting close to the start of the summer, you know, you got to send out those reminders like, yo, we need that medical form on file. And when you run a small business in the woods, it can be hard to get to the post office. Our local town, Porter, it's not a major metropolitan Port- area. Porter, Maine isn't? Safe to say. <laughs> You're saying. <laughs> so, you know, the post office closes at lunchtime. And so if you don't time it right, you can go down there and find that you've driven into town for no good reason. Matt uses Stamps.com to avoid these trips to the post office and to print official U.S. postage right from his desk using his computer and printer. So that's just another reason to say, okay, we'll keep it all in-house. We've got the printer. I can always just get online, buy some more postage, print them up. Boom, done, you know, move on to the next task. So right now you get a special offer, no risk trial, and a $110 bonus offer, including a digital scale and up to $55 free postage. Don't wait, go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in the gist. That's stamps.com. Enter the gist. And now the spiel, act now. Commercials are stupid. Whoa, Mike, whoa, they are not. Without them, how would I know about the amazing deals available for me and my family at participating Roy Rogers? Okay, fair enough. So let's say lots of commercials. Many of the commercials you watch are stupid. Before you object once more, let me just play an example of the genre. This is a commercial. Introducing Wobble Wag Giggle Ball, the interactive ball that makes the most hilarious sounds, turning a lonely day into a fun day of play while you're away. Okay, what would a non-interactive ball be? Well, I guess Edward Ball, member of Congress from the Whig Party who was killed by a railroad train near Zanesville, Ohio in 1872. Relatively non-interactive at this stage. But most balls do possess the property of interactivity. But they don't have what Wobble Wag Giggle Ball has. Namely, Wobble Wag Giggle Ball uses unique sounds, colors, and motion designed to mimic human laughter and joy to engage your dog's natural curiosity and instincts to play. Notice how this makes it sound like it's the well-thought-out curriculum of a very progressive Montessori school. In this highly competitive world, only schnauzers and shih tzus with the most nurturing squeaky toys can hope to land a spot in university. Wobblewag Giggle Ball creates a nurturing environment based on the teachings of John Dewey, Jean Piaget, and Cesar Milano. And look at the benefits! And when it's taught and shaken, it fills your dog with the pride of accomplishment. In fact, teams of neurologists have mapped the canine brain and found that the self-esteem instilled by playing with the wobble-wag giggle ball are second only to the intense confidence gained by licking one's own testicles or lapping up the vomit of another dog. And if that other dog, the one who originally vomited, patient vomit zero of the dog world, if he was playing with Wobble Wag Giggle Ball, well, then the resultant pride is increased tenfold. To make this the funnest deal on TV, we'll double it for free. Just pay separate processing and handling. All right. It needed to be said. God damn it, how much does it cost to process a second Wobble Wag Giggle Ball? And didn't you just document the life-affirming benefits of playing with the Wobble Wag Giggle Ball? And in the next sense, you want to charge me an extra five bucks for handling the Wobble Wag Giggle Ball? I shouldn't be paying you. You should be paying me. When your workers in Wobble Wag Giggle Local 543 are alone in the factory, they're all bored and listless, but then they get an order for a Wobble Wag Giggle Ball and their ears perk up. But if they get two orders, well, they're positively giddy. Okay. So when we get the kind of advertising that seems like advertising, that takes up maybe some of our critical faculties, it really grates on us. We at least notice it. It scans as advertising, maybe something to guard against. 
So I used to work at NPR. NPR, no advertising, right? And now I work at the GIST, part of the Panoply Network, formerly the Wobble Wag Giggle Panoply Network. And I sometimes get this question. What about advertising? Mike, do you, do you feel weird doing ads? You come from the world of public radio, non-commercial radio. Do you worry that ads take up too much time or take away from the show? I don't. And I didn't yesterday, even when the show was 42 minutes long. We had three minutes worth of ads. Now, when shows are pithier, this is the ideal, a pithier show, there's a larger ratio of ads to show, but it ain't much. Let's compare this to TV. The LA Times reported that in 2009, TV featured 13 minutes, 25 seconds of commercial time per hour. By 2013, that was up to 14 minutes, 15 seconds. So about a quarter of your TV time is spent watching ads. What about commercial-free broadcasting? Commercial-free. Okay. On Wall Street, there's something known as a triple witching day. I listen to NPR. Today was a double pitching day. Here's how I do it. Normally, I listen to WNYC, the New York public radio station. This way, I can manually counter program. It's useful when I, as an American, am asked to listen to the BBC at 9 a.m. So I have a bunch of stations programmed into my NPR app. I could listen to WNPR in Connecticut, great station, KUT in Texas. I like the talk of Lady Bird Lake, KAJX in Aspen, WBEZ in Chicago, KCRW in Santa Monica. I use all these stations to bail out of boring local inspirational stories about youth initiatives or water use in the West or whatever. And notice how they're all spaced throughout the country so I could hit every time zone. So I'm pretty active. But today, the WNYC pledge drive came on. I knew that this was going to happen. Boom, switched to Chicago. But guess what? The last day of the WNYC pledge drive is the first day of the WBEZ Chicago pledge drive. So I got the double pitching day. And it occurred to me that if you add up all the pitching, all the time wasting, I'm not even going to say it's horrible. I know it's necessary, but it's not giving you the content you tune in for. If you add all that up, it makes what the gist does our modest, hey, set up a website. Hey, buy a mattress. Hey, here's a stamp. Hey, here's a razor. Hey, enter an offer code. It makes it seem like a breath of fresh air. Fresh air sponsored by Sit for Less. Now Sit for Life. Soon to be list to the left and one day Sit for Less is now left for dead. Anyway, I want to do a fair comparison, a one-to-one comparison. Let's say the average length of the gist, 25 minutes, and it is. I averaged the last dozen or so shows. So let's compare 25 minutes when where you get is at most three minutes of ads to the 25 minutes of all things considered or morning edition. So on those shows during a pledge drive at the highlight, if you catch it at the absolute worst time, you catch the tail end of one pledge break, then they'll go to some actual content. Then you could get the entirety of another pledge break. So what it could be is three minutes of pitching, eight minutes of programming, 10 minutes of pledge break. Now, that is the worst case scenario. Pledge breaks usually last for 15 to 20 minutes out of an hour when they're on, of morning edition or all things considered. Other shows do a little less, but they raise the most money during those shows, so you'll hear the most pitching. In between the pitching, they play the actual show so that the people pitching can say, hey, listen to this show. Where else do you get shows like that? But the pledge drive, I'm going to acknowledge, of course, it's not all year. Usually, a station will do three pledge drives a year. They'll last about 10 days. So that's 30 calendar days of pitching. And as I documented during the big shows, that's a quarter to a third of the show during those 30 days pitching, pitching, pitching. All right, so let's put aside the pledge drives for a second. Of course, public radio has underwriting credits, funders, they're sometimes called. Here's the, here's the morning edition clock, which I have right here. Four times an hour. For lengths of 19, 34, 34, and 49 seconds, it's two minutes, 16 seconds of underwriting credits every hour. 
during pledge drives, not during pledge drives. Two minutes, 16 seconds. That's just national. The local stations air their own on top of that. Let's put that aside. The two minutes, 16 seconds. Now let's consider the pledge drive. How much would that be if instead of just having these intense periods where a third of the overall hour is spent pitching you, let's say we stretched it out over the whole year. You know, what's the average? It winds up being one minute, 40 seconds per hour if they pitched every day instead of doing it as they do 10 days a year for three periods. They pitched every day. The same amount of time would be a minute 40. Add that to the 216. We have almost four minutes of pitching, pledge drives, or underwriting credits per hour. I haven't even included the local underwriting credits. It gets up to close to five minutes in an hour of NPR, on average, of pitching, fundraising, funders, underwriting, all the stuff you call it that are very equivalent to ads. We don't do that on the gist. We don't come close to that on the gist. So I just would like to say, public radio I support. I pledge to public radio. They need to do these things. I'm not gainsaying the necessity of all the things they're doing. I'm just doing a direct comparison for how much time is taken up by them, how much time is taken up by the gist. My conclusion is, the gist is bliss if you'd rather less blather. And we never promised you a more verdant, peaceful, sustainable, or ergonomic world. Process and handle that. That's it for today's show. The Gist is sponsored by managing producer Joel T. Meyer and Catherine B. Meyer Foundation for furtherment of the betterment of breath mints. We're also sponsored by executive producer Andy R. Bowers and Drusilla P. Bowers Foundation, dedicated to the proposition that Christian Slater has been doing a career-long impression of Jack Nicholson. You can get our daily email where not only we'll tell you that the show's ready, just click on it and hear the show and sign up for that email at slate.com slash gist email. We're a part of the Panoply Network, P-A-N-O-P-L-Y. Check out the entire roster of podcasts at iTunes slash Panoply. The Gist, sponsored by the Carnegie Corporation and a new book on the life of Van Gogh put out by Knopf and the William T. and Penelope B. Pfeiffer Foundation, advancing the notion that most of the things you think you're pronouncing right, you're pronouncing wrong. Door Tetchiness is our fort at doorfort.org. That, by the way, is not a website. It's a town in Germany that is not spelled D-O-T-O-R-G. This is Josh Levine, host of Slate Sports Podcast, Hang Up and Listen. This week's episode, we talked to ESPN's Kevin Pelton about the state of sports analytics and the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. You can subscribe to Hang Up and Listen at iTunes.com slash Slate Podcasts.